Hi, welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode 10 in the book of Hebrews, going through Hebrews 5, verses 1 through 10. Jesus, the great high priest. I am Joel Harford, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, this section talks about the high priestly ministry of Jesus. It begins this discussion of why he's so much greater than all the the human priests that came before after the order of Aaron. Can you give us a brief overview of chapter 5. Absolutely. Hebrews uh, 5 brings us for the first time, uh, actually end of chapter 4, on into chapter 5, into the concept of Jesus as our high priest. Actually, it's not developed anywhere else in the New Testament. We don't see it. We have indications a little here, a little there. Uh, John 17, uh, frequently called the high priestly prayer of Jesus, but he's not said there to be a priest. He's just praying for his people. And and there's other, other aspects in which you can see the priestly ministry. I think definitely the sense of a priest king was prepared for us. We're going to talk about Melchizedek, but also in uh, the book of Zechariah, we have a picture of the, the two becoming one, a priest king on the throne. Um, but it's only here in the New Testament, overtly, that we have Jesus depicted as our great high priest. Well, for the sake of our audience, I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So my first question to you, Andy, in verses 1 through 3, Jesus is introduced as this high priest offering sacrifices for sins. What is the author's goal in introducing Jesus as priest? Well, it's important for us to understand what a priest does uh, in the Latin pontifex, uh, means bridge builder. And so it's the idea of a mediator, one who can go between God and man. And because of our sin, we need a figure like this. And the Old Covenant in the Law of Moses set up through the sons of Aaron, the Aaronic priesthood, or we could say the Levitical priestly ministry, um, a pattern or a type or shadow which helps us to understand more fully what Jesus came to do. So we have this idea of Jesus being our high priest, and it's got all of this Old Covenant backdrop. So what does a priest actually do? Well, the author here tells us that the priest has uh, two duties. Uh, He uh, represents the people uh, in matters related to God, so that points toward uh, a prayer ministry, intercession, and he offers gifts and sacrifices. I would add a third thing the author doesn't mention here, which is very significant, and that is teaching the people the law of God. Uh, And so Malachi chapter 2 brings us up very plainly that that the priest uh, had faithful instruction on his lips. 
And it says in Leviticus 10:11 that the Aaronic priests were to teach the people the decrees or the laws of Moses. So the author doesn't get into that here, but we see that teaching ministry in Jesus, perfected in Jesus. I will say that, that there's a flow here, uh, and we don't want to neglect seeing that, that as we jump in here in chapter 5, verse 1, we're actually picking up a train of thought uh, from the end of chapter 4 where it says, We have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And he's urging us, because we have such a great high priest, who um, is, not, um, is not unable to sympathize uh, with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we have, yet was without sin. Therefore, because we have this kind of a priest, we should draw near to the throne of grace. And so he flows right into that by talking about the Aaronic or Levitical priesthood. So since we're not uh, first century Jews steeped in, in Judaism and the Aaronic priesthood, can you just give us the backdrop of you know, what was the Aaronic priesthood? Explain the laws that God set up at Mount Sinai, explaining the priests who were going to minister at the tent and then, and then the temple, and why that was so important for, for, first for the people and how they were going to, God was going to dwell with them in the land, but then foreshadowing Christ. Well, uh, the overall goal of God is to bring a sinful people from being relationally distant from himself right into his very presence. But in order to do that, he has to humble us and teach us that we are distant and we have no right to come into his presence. And so the Old Covenant is basically based on a prohibition. Uh, it starts right away at the burning bush. What God said through the angel of the Lord in the flames of the burning bush to Moses, the first thing he said to Moses is, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals for the ground on which you're standing is holy ground. And so the idea is that there's an attraction, you know, a magnetic attraction uh, to God. We want to know God. We're drawn to him. But we are told by him that he is holy and we're not. And so we're on the outside. And so he's telling us in the Old Covenant again and again, do not come any closer. And the Old Covenant was given at Mount Sinai and through Moses the representative. And Moses was instructed to put a barrier around the base of Mount Sinai, uh, some kind of a wall, to keep the people from going up on the mountain. Despite the fact that God came in trappings of terror, of an earthquake and a fire and a loud voice and, and just absolute terror. And the author later, later in Hebrews is going to say the sight was so overpowering that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. But he still said, build a fence lest the people come up the mountain. You'd think they'd be running miles away the other direction, but he knew the people. And he said, they're going to want to come. And my lesson to them, my message to them is this far you may come and no farther. And so he set up the tabernacle with its, its basically cloth walls, eventually became the, tab, uh, the, the temple with its um, physical walls, but it's the same thing. You're not allowed to come. And the author's going to make all this point clear. We've got the holy place and the most holy place. And only the high priest can enter the most holy place. So the priest is on the outside representing the people. And he alone is allowed to come into the presence of God. The whole thing, the author tells us, the Holy Spirit was teaching us by that. Teaching us that the way wasn't yet uh, open for us. That we're on the outside looking in. That we're sinners that we need to be saved by grace. But it's also a type and a shadow pointing toward the one who could open for us the new and living way into the presence of God, uh, which is his body. The author is going to make this plain. We have this access now through Jesus. He is our great high priest. Yeah, I, I really appreciate explaining that. And I think that's huge because a lot of us have a hard time understanding the Old Testament regulations and laws. And when 
they're open for us and shown to foreshadow Christ and to show what God is teaching us, it really makes the Old Testament come alive. It so does. I appreciate that. It does. It's a beautiful thing to see. Now, regarding the, the duties of the high priest, how, does a, how is a high priest able to deal gently with sinners and be sympathetic to their plight? Well, the author says the reason they can do so is because they themselves are sinners. And if they're humble and they're godly men, they know that. And so they have to offer sacrifices for their own sins as well as for the sins of others. And so they should be able to deal gently. Um, it's only the hypocrites, uh, and we saw that a lot in the New Testament with these that seem to deny that they had any sins, the scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus is always dealing with, because they're blind to their own sinfulness. But a genuine, soft-hearted, humble uh, priest, a good priest, would recognize his own sinfulness. He would understand it and recognize it better than anyone else's sinfulness. So the author says that these old covenant priests, these Levitical priests from the sons of Aaron, uh, were able to deal gently with uh, sinners because they themselves were sinners. Now, in verse 3, is, is Jesus being compared or contrasted with the, the human high priest? I, I should say merely human because Jesus is also a human. He's he fully human, is human but, but he's more than that. It's a good question. I, you know, there's the, those two words, compare and contrast. Um, he is being compared, definitely. They are types and shadows. He's the fulfillment. But there's a definite contrasting, too, because he was tempted in every way but was without sin. And that's been clearly established. He, did ne he never needed to offer sacrifice for own sins. And frankly, if he had had to do so, he could not have represented us because he would have been busy offering sacrifice for his own sins. That's why Jesus is set apart uh, from them. He is holy and they're not. And so he is able to offer once for all time his own body and blood as a final sacrifice. So definitely this is a contrast. He, he is different than those Levitical priests were. Yeah, the, the superiority of him as a priest. And we see that later in, I think, chapter 7, where it talks about how in his calling he's made priest by an oath. They're made priest by genealogy, and they just keep dying, but he lives forever. Amen. So, But I know Amen. we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah, chapter 7. We'll get to, yeah. there, get to there at some point. Now... In uh, verse 4, it says, No one takes this honor on himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. What is the significance of the fact that it is God who calls the priest? And you're not allowed to you know, bestow that honor on yourself. Sure. Actually, we have a lot of historical background on this. You know, he, he made it very plain what the job of the Levites was going to be concerning the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. There were different tasks, and there were son, sons of, of Levi that, that had different roles to play. Uh, but specifically, the sons of Aaron were uh, selected to be the high priest who would offer uh, the sacrifice on the mercy seat, on the uh, atonement cover on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. He uh, was the only one permitted to go into the Holy of Holies. And so uh, that, those laws, those rules and regulations uh, were all given by God. I mean, Aaron didn't say one day, I'd like to be a priest. Moses, what can you do? You're close to God. Uh, you know, make it happen for me. It was just something that wasn't even on his radar screen, perhaps, didn't fully understand. God set the whole thing up. The animal sacrificial system didn't even exist. And so in the midst of learning about the, the tabernacle with its, its length of cloths and its standards and stanchions and posts and all that and cross members, uh, along with that, uh, there are the instructions in the book of Exodus about the priest and his garments and his turban and jewels on his breastplate and all of these things. He, God thought all this up. And then he called Aaron to serve as the first priest. And so the point is, you can't take this honor on yourself. God wouldn't recognize you. Uh, and so we have some examples of individuals who sinfully, boldly, 
acted in this regard, and they paid for it big time. So, for example, Nadab and Abihu, uh, who took it upon themselves to offer unauthorized fire to God, you know, a sacrifice that God did not command. Uh, and then a clear example with Uzziah, who was uh, from the line of Judah. He was a king, but he tried to go in and offer incense to God. And the priests courageously confronted him, said, it's not lawful for you to be here. And so the law commanded that the, that the priest be taken from the sons of Aaron. And the kingly line, as the author is going to make clear later, came from the uh, descendants of David, of Judah. And so that, that, was, that was cut off uh, from the, the, the Davidic line. And so you can't just up and do this. You can't take it on yourself to come into the presence of a holy God. God has to open the way. So specifically, the honor of being a high priest, God the Father had to give it to Jesus. Mm -hmm. Now, if you'd allow me to just take a, a slight digression sure. um, from the honor of being the, the priest to just honor in general. You know, um, you know, we tend to want to bestow honor on ourselves. Uh, this is exactly the opposite, though, of what the Son of God did. I, I remember in John 8, they accused Jesus of having a demon and being a Samaritan, and he says... He says, I do not seek my glory, but, but it is my Father. Yeah, there is one who seeks and judges. Just that idea that if we choose not to honor ourselves and humble ourselves, that God will, will honor us. Yeah, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, and he exalts those that are humble. And Jesus, no one has ever humbled himself more than Jesus, and therefore God exalted him to the highest place. So when it comes to this issue of the priesthood, Jesus didn't take it on himself to be priest. You think if anybody ever could have said, look, I'm the son of God. I'm the only begotten son of God. I have the right to be priest. But he didn't do that. That wasn't his mentality at all. Mm -hmm. He did not take on himself the glory of being a high priest. You know, along with this, we see again and again that Jesus said, look, I do nothing apart from the will of the Father. I don't do anything. I don't speak a word except the Father told me to say it. I don't turn stones into bread because the Father didn't tell me to do that. I don't throw myself off the pinnacle of the temple. The Father didn't tell me to do that. I don't do anything except at the mouth of God. What God tells me to do, I do. So the words I speak are not my own. They belong to God who sent me. I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Um, I don't do anything apart from God. So Jesus is very humble here and does not take on himself the glory of being a high priest. Mm -hmm. Well, in your answer, you basically quoted, nearly quoted verse 5 where it says, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be a high priest, but was appointed... And then instead of saying, like, by, appointed by God or appointed by the Father, he says it was appointed by him who said to him. And then he quotes Psalm 2, 7 again. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Then he adds another quote on top of that. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so this is uh, from Psalm 110. So how do these quotes of saying that, you know, it is written of Jesus, how does this show that Jesus was appointed by God to be a high priest. Well, first, we have to establish here his, his uh, humanity. Jesus was uh, declared to be a son at his incarnation and also at his resurrection. And so at these two key moments, both of them are, are linked to him being, uh, becoming flesh, the word becoming flesh. So he could not have been our mediator. He could not have been our priest except that he was human. And so he had to be able to, like Job said, if only there was someone who could lay a hand upon us both. And so Jesus is that bridge builder, that mediator. And so the, the author is in a very uh, complex and marvelous way here quoting, you are my son, today I've begotten you, uh, linking it to his status as a human being. 
but also you are my son. So there's a sense that let's let's you know, marvel in this that he has the father's ear, and that everything that he he asks his father for he'll get. So uh, you want someone like that approaching the throne and interceding for us because he's going to get everything he asked for. So Jesus did not take the glory on himself of being a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you or become your father. And so I prepared a body for you. I prepared a human body for you so that you could be a priest and you could offer that body as a sacrifice. Right. And then can you talk about him being designated a a priest after the order of Melchizedek from Psalm 110? Yeah, this is a mysterious thing um, that happens, just pops up in the Genesis account, Genesis 14, I believe, this mysterious figure, uh, Melchizedek, and we don't need to go into detail right now because the author stops himself right in the middle of this discussion in a moment uh, at the end of chapter 5, which I think we'll discuss next time, our next podcast. But, you know, he says, I have a lot more to say about Melchizedek, but I got to, you know, I got to dress you guys down first. I got to do some rebuking. I got to slap you around a little bit because, you know, you're so immature and you can't handle this advanced teaching. But the Melchizedek teaching is advanced teaching. And he's going to go into great detail in chapter 7 about it. So we'll uh, refrain a bit, but I'll, I'll give a little a little preview. Um, this individual pops up in Genesis 14, and then you don't hear anything more about him at all. I mean, nothing until David writes Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, a messianic psalm. And, and in that same psalm, he says, uh, the Lord has sworn and will not, will not change his mind. You're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So, I mean, it just comes up out of nowhere. And he says, this is the priesthood of Jesus. You know, you are my son, and this is, this is the, the honor I have for you. So, again, there's much more to say, and he will say it in chapter 7. Mm-hmm. Well, just Two Journeys podcast listeners, we don't think you are in, too mature to <laughs> learn about Melchizedek, but we're just following the flow of the text. Following the so text. we think you're ready, <laughs> but we'll have to wait till chapter 7. That's so funny. Um, now, getting into verse 7 of chapter 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Mm. This must speak of Gethsemane, right? I think so. I think he's talking about Gethsemane and um, it, just the, the passion and the power and the intimacy of Jesus' prayer life. This is perfect prayer. And so again, what the author, big picture, what the author is doing, and and we've said this many other times on these podcasts, but let me say it again. Uh, What's going on is the author is addressing Jewish people who had made a profession of faith in Christ, but who are under intense pressure to turn their backs on Jesus and go back to Old Covenant Judaism. Well, what what are they going back to? Well, they're going back to the animal sacrificial system and back to the Aaronic or Levitical priesthood. And what the author is going to do here is say that Jesus is superior to that. He's a better priest. All right, and he, he is called by God to be his son, but also to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek, which is a better priesthood, as he's going to argue. So this is a better uh, priestly ministry. But one of the things priests do is they intercede for you. And so in the consummation of the Melchizedek argument in chapter 7, the, the pinnacle of it is, is Hebrews 7.25, that Jesus ever lives to intercede for us. And how does he pray? He prays like he prayed in Gethsemane. Prays for your soul with that kind of passion and power. And the fact, the most important thing is that he's heard. The Lord hears him and that he can know that he has whatever he asks on our behalf. So you want someone like this praying for you. So the author is referring to Jesus's time on earth, the time of his physical earthly ministry. 
And during the time, his time on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions. It says um, fervently or passionately crying out, uh, even with tears. Um, and he offered them up to God. So yeah, let's, let's say he at least did that in Gethsemane. He might have done that other times because Jesus had a very active prayer life. Yeah, I remember being shocked. Um, I think it's in Luke when he goes to pick his disciples and it says he spent all night on the mountain in prayer and my jaw just dropped. I <laughs> yeah, couldn't believe it. You think if anybody could have just made the decision on his own, you know, with, with, uh, with his own wisdom, no one was wiser than Jesus. But Jesus is constantly modeling, I don't do anything apart from the Father. And so, I mean, he's t training us because we're so sinfully, wretchedly independent. And so Jesus uh, gives us this uh, picture of, of a son going to his father, crying out, Abba, Father, if it is possible, let this cup be taken from me, speaking of Gethsemane. And uh, he's there on the ground, and great drops of blood are forming on his brow, and they're dripping to the ground because of the intensity and the agony with which he poured out his soul. You know, one Puritan writer said, painted fire is no fire at all and neither are cold prayers real prayers and so sometimes our prayers are like like painted fire um, there's no there's nothing to it there's no passion there's no heart but that's not the way it is with Jesus he he passionately fervently prayed to his father and the intimacy Abba father all things are possible with you if it is possible let this cup be taken from me and in this way, you, you see uh, the kind of intensity and intimacy that Jesus will use for you. That's where we're going. In 725, Hebrews 725, you get this kind of interse intercessory prayer ministry on your behalf. Hmm. That's, that's, that's beautiful. Now, one more question regarding verse 7. It says, he prays to him who is able to save him from death. But Jesus wasn't saved from death. He was, you know, we do know he was, of course, resurrected on the third day, but he did experience death. So what does this teach us about unanswered prayers? Well, God the Father was able to do anything. Uh, Jesus said it, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Is it possible that I would not die? Actually, nothing could have been more possible than that. Jesus in him was life. If anyone ever would have lived forever, it would have been Jesus. So it's actually expected that he would not die. So the idea is certainly he was able to save Jesus from death. But at one level, it was impossible because here's the thing. Jesus says, um, Abba, Father, all things are possible. Is it possible? He's basically asking a question. Is it possible for me not to drink this cup? And though the Father never says anything in the Gethsemane account, Jesus knows he has his answer. It's not possible. So it is not possible if, if you're going to save the sons of Abraham, the ones that you came into the world to save. If you're going to save them, you must die. So there is no other way. And then effectively, a different question comes, but it's from the father to the son. If it's not possible, will you do it? Will you drink this cup I'm handing to you? And Jesus effectively says, yes, not my will, but yours be done. So that's incredible, the, the submission, the piety, the reverent fear that the author mentions here. Um, he, he heard Jesus' prayer. So yeah, it was possible for the Father to save Jesus from death. He was the only one that could. Um, you know, honestly, think of it this way. Once Judas left, 
and went, uh, and Jesus, and Jesus went to Gethsemane, where Judas knew he would go. The only thing that could deliver Jesus from 600 Roman soldiers is supernatural power. Yeah. Just in and of himself, he's done. He's a dead man. So he knew the only one who could save him from death at that point was the Father, and the Father said no. Yeah. I remember you talking, I think when you were preaching through Matthew, that uh, that was possibly the most courageous moment in history for any human being. Was well, the I think we're Jesus. going to, yeah, we're going to give the top honor of all godly virtue to Jesus in every regard. So we would have to say his whole life was one of courage. Every day he exhibited courage. But this is the pinnacle. And I wouldn't say it ended once he got up from his prayer and walked out and presented himself like in John's gospel, say, whom are you seeking? Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. And they arrest him. I mean, he's courageous all the way through. But this is such a clear display of courage to be willing to drink that cup. Yeah. Okay, sorry, I did have one more on chapter 7. It says he was heard because of his reverence. Yeah. Why this emphasis on his reverence? Well, um, he knew better than we do who it is he's talking to. We forget who we're talking to. We have these rote prayers, these trite prayers. We stumble into God's presence forgetting who we're talking to. Jesus never lost sight of the infinite majesty of his heavenly Father. And he had uh, really a, a godly fear here. Uh, it's, it's hard to even imagine, but that's the word that the author uses here. He was heard because of his fear. Um, other translations have piety, um, but it all has to do with a godly submission and fear in relation to the Creator God, the, the ruler God. And so um, that demeanor, that attitude is essential to him being pleasing to God. God is pleased with that kind of, of godly submission, with that kind of, of fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Jesus perfectly displayed that. So he was heard because of it. It was on the basis of his demeanor, on the basis of his piety, his godliness. God the Father welcomed him and heard him. Mm -hmm. Now, how did he learn obedience through what he suffered? And then it says, you know, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. So one, how did, how did he learn obedience and how did he quote be, you know, being made perfect? How was he made perfect? Yeah, that? these are great, great questions. We should never imagine at any moment that there was any moral imperfection in Jesus, that he could be improved in terms of his holiness or improved in terms of his, his purity. None of that's possible. Jesus was perfect all the way through. Um, however, he did learn. And honestly, when we're looking at the, um, the mystery of the incarnation, it's just beyond us to comprehend how Jesus could be God and human at the same time. It's just going to cause the circuit breakers to blow in our minds. And so here you have the omnipotent God in the form of a helpless baby wrapped up in swaddling clothes. All right, how is that possible? Or you have the omniscient God learning things as a toddler through Joseph and Mary. You know, Jesus learned wisdom and grew up. He grew in, in wisdom. All right, so that meant he grew more and more in knowledge of the Word of God and other things. So that's just the mystery of the Incarnation. So once you accept that and you see that going on, then you say, okay, um, there, were, there were in his humanity, in his humanity, he, he was able to learn things. In his deity, he never learned anything and never will. Omniscience can't be improved on. But in his humanity, he learned and he grew and developed. Okay? But I think this is more speaking of his office as our mediator and as our high priest. He was made perfect, or I would think of maybe a better concept here would be qualified. He was qualified to be our Savior by his death on the cross, let's say. 
If he hadn't died on the cross, he would not be qualified to be our Savior. All right, so in the same way, he was qualified to be our high priest by suffering things we suffered. So he had to do it by experience. He, could, he had to be able, the author is saying, it seems, that in order to be a merciful and faithful high priest, he had to be able to look us in the eye and say, I know exactly how you feel. I went through it myself. And so we can say, yes, you did. You experienced hunger. You experienced thirst. You experienced rejection from sinful people. You ex experienced pain. And you experienced death. So you, you experienced temptation. So you are qualified or perfected in, those, in your office as our great high priest, our mediator, by having lived through those experiences. So the author says the same thing back in chapter 2, verse 10. It says, In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. So the idea of perfect, I think, is a finish line. It's like he completed when, when Jesus said, it is finished, he said, effectively, it is perfected. It's done. I've done everything you told me to do. That's the same idea here of being made perfect. He was not imperfect and now perfect. It was that he finished what was laid out for him to do. Right. That makes total sense. Now, what about this word, he became the source of eternal salvation. Salvation is, is listed all through. You know, it's, it's God's work in us. But the fact that the author of Hebrews used this word eternal seems significant in light of the the passing shadows of the Old Covenant and the eternal security of the New Covenant. Can you mm -hmm. talk about that? Yeah, I mean, eternal salvation, eternal life. Um, it's just a, a beautiful thing. And I think what it points to also, as we look ahead into eternity, we look ahead into heaven, there won't be any future fall. You know, we're not going to later fall into, into sin. We, we have an eternal salvation. And Jesus is said here, uh, to be the source of, or the author of, the origination of eternal salvation for those who obey him. Let me pick up on the word obey, because I didn't mention that back, uh, as I probably should have done in verse 8. He learned obedience from what he suffered. And so Jesus was a perfectly obedient son in Gethsemane, but his whole life. And so we need to learn and imitate his obedience, because by his obedience, he saves people who obey. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's who he saves. And so the author is basically giving a warning. If you want to be saved, you have to be, become obedient as Jesus. Now, we're not ever going to be perfectly obedient like Jesus was, but there is an essential obedience that God works in us that is a mark of saving faith. The works that James talks about in James 2, faith without works of obedience is dead. And so he becomes the source of an eternal salvation for anyone who obeys, first of all, the gospel and then all the commands that flow from it. Yeah. Yeah. Faith manifests in obedience. I even think of Paul in Romans talks about, you know, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Yeah. So I think for us, we need to think about Gethsemane. I think we really should think about it every day. I mean, every moment almost that we're effectively saying to God, not my will, but yours be done. Mm -hmm. Because our wills just run so contrary to the perfect plan of God, but that we would be willing to submit and do hard things to, to obey the commands of God. And Jesus is a perfect example of that. He was made perfect by his suffering. He was made perfect by his, his obedience in the face of suffering. And we can say, we'll never be called on to drink 
a cup like Jesus uh, drank, the cup of God's wrath, just wrath against sin. Thank God Jesus drank it for us. But we will drink from his cup, the cup of suffering, like James and John were said to do, and we're going to have to suffer in order to obey God. That's the lifestyle the author of the Hebrews is commending for these Jewish professors of faith in Christ. Hmm. Amen. Do you have any closing comments on this passage? No, I'm excited to go on uh, to the section on Melchizedek. There's a lot to learn, but we have to wait for basically all of the rest of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6. You know, a big digression as the author gives, gives us all a bit of a stinging rebuke um, so that we keep making progress in our salvation. Well, that was episode number 10 in the book of Hebrews. Please join us next time for episode 11, which is You Should Be Mature, But You Still Need Milk, going through Hebrews 5, verses 11 through chapter 6, verse 3. If you would, please go to twojourneys.org and download the Bible study. It's the book of Hebrews on the books slash Bible studies page. We would encourage you to lead Bible studies in your workplace or in your neighborhood. And if these are helpful, use them to lead Bible studies. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and God bless you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.